Turn in our Bibles now to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. We're going to begin this morning in studying through the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written by Peter, the disciple of Jesus. Um, probably don't need to say too much about him because we know more about him than we do about any of the other disciples by far. Um, usually we think in terms of, oh yeah, he was a guy that sunk when he tried to walk on the water. He was a guy that denied Jesus and chickened out after bragging. He, you know, he was a guy that Jesus called Satan. Um, but also you have to consider, this guy was pretty amazing. He was quoted in the, in the Gospels more than anyone else other than Jesus. His name was used more times than anyone but Jesus. Jesus talked to Peter specifically more than he did to any other individual, and he talked to Jesus more. He was there at all the major events, and ultimately, I mean, Jesus gave him that thing, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, as he was the one who said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, and the Son of the living God. And so a lot of good things about Peter. When Jesus found him, he was just a fisherman, but he really grew and expanded. And ultimately, when the church began on the day of Pentecost, Peter was the guy that got the nod to give the first sermon. His first sermon he had ever preached, 3,000 people came forward to get saved. So I'm a great admirer of Peter, and it's fun seeing this book as written later in his life after everything that he had learned and what he wanted to communicate to the Christians. Now, by the time he wrote this book, most of Paul's books had already been written, and Peter quotes or borrows from a lot of the terminology that Paul uses and even refers to Paul's books as being, um, you know, Scripture and also. Uh, but, but Peter is writing to Christians as persecution was really starting to kick in. The government was really starting to clamp down on Christians. It was difficult for them. There was already religious opposition, but now more and more there was political opposition as well. And so the book of Peter, of First Peter, is all about how to get along in hard times. When you come across difficulties in your life, when life hurts and when it isn't going the way that you want it to go, the book of First Peter can be a real encouragement because he challenges us to keep a perspective on our suffering, challenges us and reminds us of who we are and who God has made us. He reminds us of the hope that we have, the future that we have with the Lord. He also teaches us in very practical ways how to submit to various relationships in order for your life to go smoothly. And so a lot of really helpful and very practical stuff bears similarities to the book of James that we just studied through. But now we'll get going on this thing. Um, the first 12 verses that we're going to look at this morning are really establishing our identity. He's really trying to ask the question or to get us to ask the question of ourselves, who am I anyway? When people don't know who they are, life becomes pretty fruitless. But as you begin to discover your own identity and you escape your own identity crisis, all of a sudden other things start to fall into place. And so Peter wants to let us know who we really are, that we won't forget who we are, that we'll live in light of who we are. And so he goes through these first 12 verses, and he first shows us 
that we're people of God, that we are connected to God. He then, in a few verses, shows us that we're people of faith and what that all means. And then finally, in the last few verses that we'll look at this morning, he shows us that we're people of destiny, people who fit in to the flow of history, and we're, we matter, and we've mattered always. So let's just dive into this first chapter, the first verse. Peter introduces himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims, those who are campers, basically, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to who Peter actually wrote this letter to. The word diaspora, or the dispersion, was typically used all through the Old Testament of Jews who were not in their homeland. They were scattered. And so he's using this term, and if he was writing primarily to Jews who were in these various areas, that would kind of make sense. But then other people argue that later in the book, he talks about, you guys used to be idolaters and stuff. And so um, he's probably not restricting himself to talking to Jews, but to any Christians, whether Jews or Gentiles, and letting us realize that we are kind of scattered. Now, these uh, later in the book, he, uh, towards the end, he says that he's writing from Babylon. Babylon was a city there in present-day Iraq, near the Euphrates River. And um, some people have argued that he was using the term Babylon, but he really meant Rome, or he meant a city called Babylon in northern um, Egypt, or you know that he, that he was referring to Jerusalem as Babylon. But the best explanation probably is that he was just writing from Babylon, especially when you look at the names of these cities here in verse 1. And these are all cities in what they called Asia Minor, but today it's present-day Turkey. And if you look at a map of Turkey and you find these locations, they form a progressive line in order, if you were coming from where Iraq is and you sent something there, it would go right by these cities. And so this was written as a circular to be sent to these cities one at a time as they are named and listed here. So then, in verse 2, he begins into this description of who you are and who a child of God is. And right in verse 2, he gets the whole Trinity involved in the discussion. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And scriptures teach very clearly, this is one of the places, there are plenty of others, that, that there is one God, but he is manifest in three persons within the one Godhead. And when one of them works, they all work together. They are distinct, but not separate. They are all equally God and share all the divine attributes. But here, in talking about who we are, he uses each member of the Trinity in his discussion. And so he says, first of all, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The word elect means chosen out of. You were selected, you were picked, you were chosen. Now, this brings on a huge amount of controversy and discussion within the church because the idea of divine election is kind of difficult for us a lot of times. The fact that God chose me can cause me to feel like, well, I'm better than you, I deserved it. That certainly is not the case. There are those who contend that 
election basically makes us robots that he does it and we just kind of have no choice in the matter and yet scripture talks about choice here he says he describes us as being elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father now elect according to foreknowledge foreknowledge means you know something ahead of time so what this is saying well, let me say what it isn't saying, what I don't think it's saying, first of all. There are some people who take this and go, oh, that makes divine election make perfectly good sense because he, from before we were even born, he knew if we would accept Jesus or not, and therefore he looked down through history and he said, okay, I see that you're going to accept him, so I pick you. And so some people... Um, usually Arminians and people who believe openness theology see God as basically responding to our response and therefore us being chosen based on what he knew we would do. Problem with that is that it means that he didn't really choose us at all. The election would mean nothing if he just says, I'll choose you if you first choose me. Jesus said, You didn't choose me, I chose you. He calls us to respond to him, but to make our response the determining factor completely denies the the reality of of true choice in that he chose us. So that's a problem with that view. On the other side, in Reformed theology that's commonly called Calvinism, they can't deal with the fact that Jesus would know how we would choose And therefore, they define this word foreknowledge as being basically the same thing as foreordination, that he knew that he was going to choose us, so he chose us. Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either, and it it really doesn't seem to, to jive with the fact that we are supposed to come to him. We're supposed to make that choice. So I think in this case, the Calvinists and the Arminians are both in error. Here's the... but. It's not really the point of the passage. The point of the passage is for us to realize that God chose us and knew us. Now, I won't say that that God chose me because he knew I would choose him, because to me that doesn't make me feel very special. Um, That would be like if you lived in a society of arranged marriages, and they picked someone for you to be married to, and then you say, I choose you. Well, yeah, you don't have any choice to choose anyone else. I don't think that's the idea of it. But at the same time, I think it's an error to say that God couldn't have considered my free will in making his selection. That goes too far in another direction. So what I say is I know I was chosen by God, and I know he has always known everything that he knows. And it's fine with me if he wants to use any factor in his selection process. The point of this passage is he chose me. He picked me. He adopted me. He wanted me. And so that's where it starts. Talk about Father's Day. You know, and some of us are blessed with great earthly fathers. Some of us not so much. But the truth is, if you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, I don't care what kind of father issues you have, your heavenly father chose you, and he wanted you, and he selected you, and he he pulled you out to be special to him. And that's something that we should all take great comfort in. But then he says also, in sanctification of the Spirit. Now, 
the word sanctification just means to be set apart, made special. And he isn't here talking about what we typically call sanctification as that process of cleaning us up after we come to Christ, because that would be completely out of the context. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit was involved from the beginning as well in setting us apart. The Father chose us, the Spirit set us apart, and Jesus, through obedience, sprinkled the blood in order to forgive our sins. The Bible says that Jesus was actually sacrificed before the foundation of the world. Before we were ever born, he had made that plan already, and it was always in, into place. And so the point is, the three members of the Trinity working together make us someone special. The Father chose us and knew us. The, the Holy Spirit set us apart and, and, and set us aside for the purposes of God. Jesus Christ, through obeying what needed to happen, gave his blood, shed his life for us. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And so he did what was necessary. Without any of that, we would have no hope. But with all of that, we ought to start feeling like, wow, I'm feeling pretty special. God chose me. The Spirit set me apart. Jesus gave his life for me. And that's the point that Peter's trying to make. Hey, Notice who you are. You are people of God. God has a special plan in mind for you. He went way out of his way in order to latch on to you and to love you. And then he has the greeting that Paul uses quite a bit. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Grace, charis, um, the word caress comes from that. That was a typical word of Gentiles, um, of greeting each other and peace. Shalom was the Hebrew word for peace that was the typical Jewish greeting. And so when you're greeting Jews and Gentiles, it makes sense to say grace and peace be multiplied. More, You'll never have peace until you understand grace, but both of them are to be multiplied. You have a certain level of peace right now, but you're not scratching the surface of the peace that God wants to give you. He wants that to increase in your life. An understanding of his grace is something that we will never completely comprehend the depth and the greatness of his grace. And, and so he says, I just pray that these things will be multiplied. Now they go together. If you understand grace, you'll have a peace. If you, if you receive his peace, it's because of his grace. If you don't feel at peace, it's because you don't get his grace. And so go back and focus on the grace, and that will ultimately bring you the peace. So now he says, though, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus himself. And he says that the Father is to be blessed the, word, the normal word for bless in the New Testament is a word that just means to be happy. But this is a different word. This is a word that's only used of God. And it's a word that basically means to praise him or to worship him. It's the, the Greek word eulogeo, or it comes from the same word that we get eulogy, which means a word, logos, and, and you, which is good. So a good word, when you pronounce a blessing on someone, 
you're, you're saying good words about them. And so he's here praising God, who, according to his abundant mercy, and it would take abundant mercy for us to be saved, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He said, understand this. It's not just that God was working in your life, but he has begotten you. In other words, he adopted you. You are his child. And he is blessed. As we worship him, we also recognize he's your dad. He loves you. He, he chose you, and, and he has given you a new life. He, he gave you a fresh start. And he says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and he said, because I live, you will live also. When we are his, God's child, we have that guarantee that death has no threat over us. Death cannot hold us. Death cannot keep us. And how it changes your life once you can get over the fear of death. Once you get to the point where the big enemy of everyone, death, now has no effect because you've been born again. And we have a living hope. We have a guarantee of resurrection if we have a, if we have a walk with Jesus, if we've given our life to him. So many people live their entire lives. Some of them will get to be 90, 100 years old, the whole time scared to death of death. The whole time not wanting to do anything for fear of risk. But life only begins once you discover that death isn't such a threat. Now, most of the things that people are so afraid it's going to kill them, it won't. And a lot of things that you think would never kill you will. Some of the people who live their lives the most riskily, sometimes they'll end up living long ages. And the people who obsess on safety and all that um, will sometimes die an untimely death. But here's the thing. We can be set free because of who we are. We can boldly go forward in life without being afraid of death because we have a living hope. That's an amazing insurance policy. That's, you know... There are people who will say to me, oh, I think it's terrible that you ride a motorcycle. That's so dangerous. You know, you know what's more dangerous than riding a motorcycle? Is not riding a motorcycle because you're afraid to or because somebody won't let you. Sorry, I know I'm not going to get a lot of applause on that, but I'm not looking for it. But I'm telling you, a lot of people live their lives just so fearful of what's going to happen that nothing happens. They never actually get to do anything. They never have life experiences. Some people are so afraid of commitment, for instance, that they never link up with another person. You know, there's an old expression, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And that's true. And the boldness that it takes to live your life fearlessly is a boldness that only comes if you know you're covered. And God gives us that, that living hope that says, you know what? I'm not going to live my life hiding behind bushes. I'm not going to be foolish about it. I want to be a good steward. I, I want to be careful in a way that's reasonable. But at the same time, I have a living hope. So if something happens to me that kills me, I'm fine. I'm good. And that's what Peter, a guy who put himself into situations that caused him to be persecuted and tortured and imprisoned, and ultimately, he would be nailed 
to a cross upside down and crucified. Jesus told him that right at the beginning, right after telling him, hey, you know, if you love me, feed my sheep, and by the way, they're going to kill you for it. And Peter's going, so what? I'm not worried about it. If I'm doing what God is calling me to do, I have myself covered. And he goes, you guys need to realize that too, because if tough times are ahead, then you better know that you're not going to let, you let fear bend your life in any way. God's going to take care of you. And so he says, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Not only are, is he our dad, and has he given us a promise of eternity, and that he has set aside and forgiven our sins and done so much for us, the best by far is yet to come. We have an inheritance. Now, I don't know if any of you ever inherited anything. Every time somebody I know dies, it usually costs me something. But ultimately, I've thought about it. I, man, what if I, somebody's rich who knows me, doesn't have any kids, and they left me all this money? Or what if I found out about a long-lost uncle? Um, we've all, or most of us, have kind of fantasized what that would be like just to get free money. Um, but he's saying, you have that in heaven, and it's reserved for you. You should be living like an heir. People that I know who stand to inherit a lot of money, they're not real paranoid about the little piddly things that they're dealing with now because they know, don't worry, it's money in the bank. The day is coming. I'm going to get this. My rich aunt still loves me. I'm in her will. She's been coughing a lot lately. <laughs> I think I'm okay. And he goes... He goes, this, and I should have left that last one off, but <laughs> it's Father's Day. I'm a father. I can say whatever I want. So he's going, you have an inheritance. You should live like heirs. You should live like those whose future is secure. That inheritance is in heaven, and heaven is forever. Anything that you inherit on this planet is only going to last you so long, and it may just plain destroy you. But you have an inheritance that can't be corrupted, it can't be defiled, it can't fade away because it's reserved in heaven for you. Do we live our lives desiring riches in heaven? Some people are scared to death to, you know, to let go of what they have here, and what they have here doesn't even last. And it's so foolish to live your life for things that end up rotting, or when you die, you have to leave them behind. Ultimately, to invest in the future, to invest even in your own future, is to invest in what God wants to do, invest in his program, and you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead by ultimately using what God has given you here to pay dividends in the future. But the truth is, no matter what we have to give now, it's nothing compared to the inheritance that he has for us. We are all just incredibly wealthy for eternity. He said that he will give us everything. And over in Romans, Paul talks about the fact that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's us. We shouldn't be walking around like, oh, poor me, I'm so broke. We should be just acting like, 
I know something that other people don't know. I have an inheritance. And then he goes on and says in verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So ultimately, there's this security. Life can make you insecure. But understanding who we are in Christ gives us that assurance of saying, hey, he is, and, and the word here for who are kept is, could be better translated, being continually guarded. Jesus said, my Father who gave them me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. He wants us to be secure. Now you go, but wait a minute, if you tell people that, then they think they can live any way they want and still be secure. No, I didn't say that at all. I said, if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you should be secure. Now if it's not changing your life at all, you should be really insecure because it always changes your life. Discovering what God has for you does, and if that isn't happening for you, you ought to be really concerned, not very secure. However, ultimately, I think most people are, are lied to by the devil, and they're afraid that, oh, maybe I'm not saved. Let me make this really clear. If you want to be saved, you're saved. If you have chosen to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are saved, and you don't have anything to worry about. I have people calling me or coming in almost every week who are going, oh, I'm afraid I've lost my salvation. And I say, no, you, you haven't. How do you know? I go, because if you lost your salvation, you wouldn't even care. You wouldn't be here crying, telling me you lost your salvation. You'd be like, oh, I'm fine. So if you're always thinking you're fine, you might be concerned. But <laughs> if you care and you want to be with Jesus for eternity, you will be. That's going to affect your life, as, as he talks about the faith that goes along with that, as we'll see later. But his point is here that we are kept, guarded, by the power of God, not by our own ability to hang on. Salvation is not me hanging on to Jesus for dear life. Salvation is him hanging on to me, and I am secure in that. And, I, and I'm glad I can kind of relax and not be always afraid that if I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, I'm going to find myself standing outside looking in. But we're kept by the power of God through faith. And now he's going to expand on faith a little bit, but it's as he works that faith in us that, you know, that is a gift of God, then we begin to discover he's the one that's doing that work. It's ready to be revealed in the last time. So in these first four verse, five verses, we see our connection to God. And it's so important that we get that because everything else in our lives and everything else in this book flows forth from that assumption that we are children of God, that we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit has indeed set us apart, and that we have an inheritance that can't be taken away, that can't be destroyed. Now he shifts gears a bit in verse 6 and begins to talk about this thing that we call faith. He alluded to it, he actually referenced it in, the in verse 5, when he talked about it, it's that faith that, that actually gives us salvation in which we are secure. But now he expands on it a little bit. In verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. He goes, you're going through some trials, but they're just for a short time. 
And you can rejoice even though you're going through a tough time. And that seems weird, but that's possible. Because he says, in order that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you don't see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Faith leads to salvation. But he's saying, what you got to figure out is that the stuff that you're going through right now, the times when you just can't see and make sense of the future, those are God's giving you opportunities to grow in faith. And faith is an amazing capacity. He says it's more precious than gold. It won't perish. It lasts you forever. Faith is what saves you. Faith is what will allow you to live the life that God wants you to live. It's all about the faith. But, you know, we hate learning about faith because what faith is is that capacity to do something with your eyes closed or to act in a way where you can't exactly predict what's going to happen. And he uses the picture of the fact that we love Jesus, even though for most of these people, they had never seen him. Remember over in John 20, after Jesus rose from the dead, and he was talking to um, the disciples there. He had shown up in, in the room. And earlier they had seen him, but Thomas wasn't there. And then, and then Thomas said, came, and he goes, ah, you know, that's no, I'm not going to believe it until I put my finger in the scars in his hands. So then Jesus shows up right then and he goes, hey, Thomas, go ahead. Put your finger in my hands. And Thomas fell down on the ground and he goes, my Lord and my God. He didn't have to touch him. He knew at that point. But then at that point, Jesus said, it's great that you guys believe me now that you've seen me. But even more blessed are going to be the people who believe through your testimony and they haven't seen me. And see, that's where we miss out on what faith is about. Faith is about believing when you can't see. The Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because ultimately, it has to be that trust in him being deprived of all the evidence. It's not trust if you can see him. Everyone trusts their spouse while they're with them. It's when your spouse is gone that you'll find out if you really trust them. And loving Jesus while he's there, pretty easy. Loving him when he's not there is a lot more difficult, but it's also a huge, great blessing, a better blessing according to Jesus. You know, sometimes people decide to meet someone online. And so... You know, everyone puts their best foot forward online, so you get a 20-year-old picture of yourself and have it colorized, and you put it on there, and then, you know, you tell things that your kids have done and act like you did it, and, and eventually you meet, and that's where the pressure is. Oh, no, we're going to meet. I'm actually going to, they're going to see me, and so you're like, oh, I can't go run for three days and get down to my original weight. But, you know, they're probably going to be hideous too, so how much do we want to do? But ultimately, the real test is, okay, now I've seen someone. To love someone you haven't seen, that's going to be fairly selfless. But 
if you see someone and then you go, you know what, I guess I don't love you after all, then really all you're doing is saying, I didn't really love you at all. Because if you only love what you, someone that you see and you like what you see, you're really only loving yourself. You're really only wanting someone who's going to be everything that you want. And so, yeah, you can call that love, but that kind of love in a relationship should be the kind of love that you have for ice cream. It's good, it's cold, it's, you know, it makes me feel comfort, but you don't love ice cream, so therefore you really go, I don't even want to eat the ice cream because I love it so much, I just want to keep it there. But to find out what real love is, you have to be blindfolded. In fact, to find out anything that you really know, it helps if you can do it with your eyes closed. Because our eyes, you know, we cannot see spiritual things, and you won't see reality until there's something in the way. Now, if you learn to fly an airplane, one of the things that they do is put you under a hood where you can't see outside the airplane. All you can see is your instruments, and you learn to trust the instruments. And it's a freaky feeling at first. If you've ever been trained in the use of firearms, one of the things that they generally want you to do is to be able to take a gun apart and put it back together in the dark with a blindfold on or with your eyes closed. When I used to teach martial arts, I always made sure that people could do the techniques with their eyes closed because that's a higher level of competence. Anyone can do something if they can see it. They always maintain control. The real test is, what do you do when you can't see? And that's where faith comes in. I knew a guy when I was in college at Biola, and he was blind from birth. And really a neat guy, had a cool seeing eye dog. And, and one day I was talking to him, and I said, I said to him, uh, is there anything that, you know, being born blind, is there something that you really missed in life that, you know, you wish you could have? And he said, just one, really. He goes, when I got to be 15, 16, all my friends were getting their driver's licenses. And he said, I wanted to drive so bad, but I'm blind. I, I knew there was no way I could ever do it, but that's kind of hard. And I go, well, let me see what I can do. And so at Biola, the streets on the campus have these curbed curves. So I thought, curbs. So I thought, this could work. So <laughs> I got my old Panto, and I put him in the driver's seat, and I explained, here's the brake, here's the gas, here's the steering wheel, and... And uh, I put his seeing eye dog in the passenger seat. And then I got in the back seat and ducked down where no one could see me. And then we tried, okay, go forward. Little right, little right. Little, uh, no, no, let break, break. And, and I got him where he was pretty decent. And we started driving around the campus. And there are crowds of students everywhere. And because of the dog and everybody knew him. And so I would look up ahead and I'd see a group of students off on the right. And I go, okay, wave and smile to your right. And he's like, Ooh. <laughs> and the dog's hanging his head out the window, just loving this. And, but he, he really enjoyed it. It was, it was a blessing. But and I'm sure he enjoyed driving on that campus more than anyone has ever enjoyed driving on that campus. Now, what Peter is saying here is you get to live life that way. And when God deprives you of something or when he makes it so that you don't know what's coming next or life gets a bit uncomfortable, you are having the opportunity to discover the most thrilling, the most rewarding, the most incredible experience. And that is the experience of faith. 
That is the experience of trusting your hands into a God who can take care of you. And once you get through that and and you get on the other side of that, what an amazing thrill that can be. And he says, that's all God's doing. He's not blindfolding you in order to make you crash. He's blindfolding you so that you'll realize you aren't going to crash. He's there. He's taking care of you. And so he says, understand this, not only your people of God, but your people of faith as well. And uh, so then in uh, verse 10, he now talks about a, 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 an historical perspective of the whole thing and shows that they're people of destiny as well. He said, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. They really studied who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. People in the Old Testament were writing about a day when grace would come to everyone. Paul talks about this over in Ephesians chapter 3, and he says they couldn't even imagine that Jews and Gentiles could be one, could fit together, and yet there were passages that prophesied that. Passages about a kind of grace that they could never experience. Prophecies from the prophets stating reality of the day that will come, like in Jeremiah 31, he says when when God will pour his spirit out and there's this new covenant, and instead of reading a law that's outside and having to conform to it, God will place his law within your heart. They didn't get that, but Peter's saying, but you guys are there. That's, you were who they were writing about. That a bunch of people like us, most of us Gentiles of various types and persuasions, would be here together knowing God. And he says, they were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Not only did they not get that Gentiles could be saved and we would all be one together. But they also couldn't figure out why are we prophesying about a Messiah who will come victoriously and we're also prophesying about a Messiah who would come and suffer and die. And those two are clearly taught in the prophecies. Just take Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. Take Isaiah 11, talking about him coming in his glory, and you think Isaiah was going, this is crazy. And even there were people in Judaism who decided that there must be two messiahs, one who's going to suffer and one who's going to reign. So they couldn't get the whole two coming thing, and therefore they couldn't even foresee the church. And so what he's saying is, and interesting, notice who spoke to the Old Testament prophets. It was the Spirit of Christ interesting, who was actually prophesying in those, through those prophets. But it says, he testified beforehand the sufferings and the glory, and to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the same Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into." What Peter is saying is, do you realize this didn't just start with you? This didn't just happen because of you? All of history, the entire story 
of the history of the world is the story of God's planning on you being here right now. His working things out so that he could work in your life so that he could forgive your sins so that you could spend an eternity in heaven with Jesus. And so he says, not only are you children of God, not only are you children of faith, but you are also children of destiny. You are a part of a huge plan. You are a piece of the puzzle of making everything that's wrong right. And as God works in your life, and brings you to faith and salvation. It's just one piece in a huge puzzle that started, people started trying to put that puzzle together thousands of years ago, and now it's almost completed. Now the story here is almost over, and you're an important part of that story. And he says, angels desire to look into it. The angels were really fascinated by the story of redemption, you know, when Jesus was going to come, there in Luke 2, as the angel showed up to the shepherds, just couldn't sit on the news that the Messiah was coming. The scriptures often talk about angels looking at what's going on with us. And I think because angels remember when Satan and a bunch of angels fell, and there was no hope for those guys. They fell, and that was it. But when Adam and Eve fell... God has been obsessed ever since with saving and turning around civilization because he loves us in a way that in the same way that he apparently didn't have the same kind of compassion on the angels perhaps because they knew more and therefore you know they're more to be held accountable but the point is angels look at us and they go it says that the angels in heaven rejoice when one person comes to repentance when one person accepts Jesus, the angels are like, yeah. At the same time, I'm convinced that angels look at us doing stupid things and look at people for whom Jesus died who just don't want any part of him, and they're just shaking their heads. They're like, do you guys understand? This is a thousands of years story, and, and you're the pinnacle of the story? You are the last few brushstrokes in this masterpiece that God is painting that is human history and you don't want that you don't want to be with the lord you don't want to be used by him you don't want to participate with him you'd rather go to hell than to participate in something that's going to bless you amazingly do you really want to turn your back on your inheritance do you really just want to toss that away the angels are going this is crazy and peter's saying it too you guys are significant. Angels know it. And history knows it. The prophets knew it. Do you know it? And if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've just put your faith in him and believe him, then sure enough, you're connected to him. You're chosen by him. You've been adopted by him. You have an inheritance from him. And he is working in your life to teach you how to live by faith, how to, how to live your life without having to see everything before you do it. And then you're the culmination of all of God's creation. Amazing, amazing truths. Now, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the angels can't figure you out. They're looking at you and just going, come on. With everything that God has done, you don't want to believe? 
You saw that Lakers comeback, and you're just like, no, whatever, I don't think there's a God. And and I'd say the same thing. Come on, God's done so much in your life. Do you think this was just all random chance? Or do you think maybe God's actually working in your life? And I would just say to you, don't turn away from the greatest opportunity of your life to be adopted by your Father who loves you to participate in a relationship, a love relationship with Jesus Christ who you can't see, but who you'll know is there when you put your faith in him. And if you're here today and you haven't done that, please wise up. After the service, there'll be people down here in the front. They love to pray for you for any reason, but especially if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, just get on down here and do it. It's not going to cost anything. No one's going to trip out on you or do anything weird. It's just a question of going, you can accept Jesus Christ today. And then all of this stuff in these 12 verses, it'll all apply to you. You'll find out you were chosen. You'll find out you're adopted. You'll find out that you have an inheritance. You'll figure out how to live with your eyes closed. And ultimately, you'll realize all of history was pointing toward you and how much God loves you. And so if you want to do that after the service, please come down and get things right with God. For all the rest of us, I think we should hold our head a little higher today. When you look at all the things, and go back and read this passage, look at how many things God says about us in which we are blessed. We should feel like the luckiest people in the world. We should feel like people who are just, wow, we've got it made because we do. And Peter wants us to go there first, because as he begins to develop the logical ramifications of our wealth in Christ, he just doesn't want us to forget who we are, because if you forget who you you are, you'll never be able to do what he calls you to do. But if you know who you are, and you are secure in that, oh man, life is amazing. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for your word. These amazing truths that Peter shared with us as he had discovered grace, as he had been blown away by everything that you are, knowing that in the end he would give his life for this and yet just he, over and over he keeps talking about how precious you are and you are. So, Lord, lead us and guide us. If there are people here today who don't know you, who need to, get them down here and have them nail that down and help the rest of us to live life this week holding our heads high, not complaining about what we don't have, realizing that what we don't have is a chance for faith, but help us to walk with a confidence and a fearlessness that comes from people who are wealthy beyond our dreams in the bank of heaven. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.